You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Seventeen seventy-six was a monumental year for the United States. The Declaration of Independence was ratified on July fourth, seventeen seventy-six. That was certainly the high point of the year, and uh, yet seventeen seventy-six was not a good year for the Continental Army. Uh, it started off well. The siege of Boston meant that the British had to evacuate, and in March, the Americans took control of the city of Boston. But from then on, the British just had all the momentum. They captured New York City in late summer. They took control of the Hudson River, which actually divided the colonies really in half, made it very difficult to cross back and forth from the New England states in New York to the rest of the the continent. And they pushed the Americans through a series of battles out of New York, through New Jersey, and all the way across the Delaware into Pennsylvania. And the Continental Congress was meeting in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was really the capital at that point in time. And with all the momentum going the British's way, uh, the Americans were in trouble because if they captured New York and Philadelphia in the same six months, that that would be a very difficult blow to recover from. So a guy by the name of George Washington, have you heard of him? Uh, General George Washington formulated a daring plan. On Christmas night, 1776, 2,400 men would cross the Delaware River to launch a surprise attack on the British outpost in Trenton, New Jersey. And that outpost was manned by German mercenaries uh, called Hessians. The night of the raid came, and with it, a massive snowstorm. Blinding snow, really a whiteout at times. Several parts of the plan was not able to be fulfilled. Several armies had difficulty crossing, but Washington pressed on, and this very famous photo is, is uh, a depiction of that. It was at night, so it wasn't nearly as light out. But Washington pressed on, crossing the icy river in the dark of night during a whiteout. And it worked. You know the result. The Americans won the Battle of Trenton. Now, this wasn't a, a tactically significant battle. Um, it wasn't like there were tons and tons of British troops defeated but it was a morally significant battle. It signaled not just to the Americans, but to the world at large that the Americans could fight back. They could could take a punch and punch back. And this dramatic act increased morale. And that was the biggest result of this battle, that the American cause swelled and a new wave of recruits came to the Continental Army. Now, this was not the first time that a dramatic action changed the course of history. When Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to a Roman cross on a Judean hillside, the casual observer, the passerby, would have seen nothing out of the ordinary. Just another insurrectionist the Romans were eliminating. But on that dark day, God acted dramatically and decisively through the death of Christ to completely change our identity. A spiritual battle took place that day, an unseen battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, and it was a one-sided affair. It was no contest, and the man hanging on the cross was the victor, not the victim. Through the death of Jesus, victory was accomplished. The God of light defeated the powers of darkness. 
but it was a costly victory. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that sinners could receive God's pardon. Those who formerly were God's enemies have now been completely transformed through the death of God's Son. And whenever we think about truths like these that are weighty, that are heavy, that are sobering, we have a, a, a mixture of responses. Yes, we have joy on one hand because we have received so much and our salvation has been accomplished. But on the other side, we have sorrow and even grief because it cost Jesus so much. I think Chris Anderson captures it well in his hymn, His Robes for Mine. He wrote, with joyful grief, I lift my praise. And that really is the lesson of Colossians 1, 12 through 14. We give thanks to God because God acted dramatically and decisively through the death of Christ to completely change our identity. And as a result, we rejoice with grief. We lift our praise with sorrow. And so what I'd like to do here today and actually next week is take this statement that's up on the screen and break it down into three main points, which will help us to meditate on God's dramatic rescue of sinners, God's dramatic rescue of you and I. And because these verses are so densely packed with doctrinal truth, uh, today we're only going to cover the first two points. Now, you may be looking at your text saying, but Zach, there's three verses here. Why are you going to take two weeks to cover three verses? Well, as we will see, there are a number of significant truths that I don't want to just rush through. I want us to really meditate on them as we learn to treasure Christ together. Treasuring Christ doesn't happen quickly or at a glance. In a way, we're taking the treasure box out and reviewing the, the jewels that are found therein so that our hearts grow warm with affection for Christ. Next week, we'll return to these same verses and focus on the new identity that we have in Jesus. Now, before we dive into this first point of God's dramatic action, I'd like to take a moment to view this text as a whole. Many commentators have noted the significance of these verses in the larger story of Scripture. In fact, if your eyes glance over these three verses, there's a cluster of very important theological words here, like inheritance, light, darkness, delivered, transferred, kingdom, redemption, blood, and forgiveness. We could take any one of those terms and do a topical message through the Bible on them. These terms actually appear all the way back in the book of Exodus. God himself described the Exodus with many of these terms, Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Psalm 107 describes the return from exile of the people of Israel with many of these same concepts. Isaiah, the great prophet, predicted a new exodus that the Messiah would lead that would ultimately end in redemption and forgiveness. The book of Revelation shows the fulfillment of these concepts where light wins, forgiveness is accomplished, redemption is complete. These verses in Colossians 1 are really the climax of these themes because the climactic movement in all of history was the death and resurrection of Christ. Instead of saving one nation, Jesus died to save the whole world. The great moment in the story of redemption is the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus changes everything. And many of us are here because we placed our faith in Jesus, and we could say that he's changed not just everything out there, he's changed everything in here, everything in me. And this text describes how God dramatically rescued us. Now, there's one other interesting side trail that I'd like to point out. These verses have an incredible amount of overlap with the Apostle Paul's own conversion and commission. I just said a moment ago, God dramatically rescued us and Jesus changes everything. And and for Paul, Jesus did change everything in a dramatic way. He went from being a persecutor of God's people to the greatest missionary the church has ever had. In Acts 26, Paul is in jail hoping to be freed. King Agrippa comes to hear his case, so Paul recounts his testimony to the king. He explains how Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians when he saw a bright light that blinded him and heard a voice. The voice questioned Paul. Paul's name was Saul at that point. Saul, Saul, why are you, pers- why are you persecuting me? And Paul couldn't answer that question real well. And he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied and said, it is me, it is Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus told Paul that he had prepared him for a specific purpose. This is what Jesus said. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things that you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I highlighted the overlap between Jesus' words and Colossians 1.12. There are seven different concepts that are found in both passages. There is deliverance, there is inheritance, there's light and darkness. There is sanctification and saints are the same root word of being made holy. There's forgiveness of sins. So what's going on here? Well, I wonder if Paul was thinking of his own conversion when he wrote about when he wrote about the great salvation God accomplished through Christ. Just like, God, just like the Lord Jesus dramatically rescued Paul, God does the same for every sinner, snatching them from a destiny in hell to a glorious future with a hope-filled inheritance. And that's about what we're about to study. Now, we're going to dive into the verses now, uh, you know, 10 minutes into our sermon here. Colossians 1.12 begins with a call to give thanks Giving thanks, as we said last week, flavors our prayers. It's, it's sprinkled throughout our prayer to add uh, spice and meaning to it. But it also grammatically connects back to the phrase that you may walk worthy of the Lord. We walk worthy of the Lord when we choose to practice giving thanks. So if we don't have a thankful spirit in our hearts, we are actually not walking worthy of the Lord. That's convicting even right there. <laughs> But that leads to another question. Why are we to give thanks to the Father? What are some reasons that we should give thanks? Because God acted dramatically and decisively. And there are three actions that Paul points to here. Three actions in verses 12 and 13. The first, God qualified us, describes his actions in general. The second and third 
delivering and conveying show us how God qualified us. So the first one is God qualified us for an eternal inheritance. That's found in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Well, to be qualified is to meet all the conditions and requirements necessary for something. Many jobs have uh, uh, requirements or certifications that they have to pass. To become a lawyer, one must pass the bar. Doctors must pass the boards. Accountants must pass the CPA exam. If I didn't mention your profession, I'm sorry. I have a friend who earned an accounting degree in in college and then chose to switch fields. He never sat for the CPA exam. Though he had the training, he was not qualified to be a public accountant. In these occupations, a person must do all the work to become qualified. They must study. They must spend the money. They must work through school. But here, who is the one that qualifies us? It's God. He is the one who does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And what does he qualify us for? He qualifies us to be partakers. To be a partaker means that we have a portion of something, a piece of the pie, We share, we are a partaker of the inheritance. So our share will be given to us in the future. We have something awaiting us yet to come. What is that inheritance? It's the inheritance that all the saints have. Those who have been made holy by their faith in Christ will share in this. So if you have declared yourself a believer in Jesus by trusting him by faith, you have this inheritance. And the the reference to light here is a reference to where our inheritance is. Light is a symbol for eternal light, eternal life in heaven. So every saint has a piece of the same spiritual inheritance, which is a home in heaven, in the light of of God found in glory. No person could be qualified to share this glorious inheritance on their own. God takes the initiative in this. And it's, it's sometimes hard to wrap our minds around the significance of this. It would be like receiving a letter in the mail this week, and you look at the return address, and you see 3555 Farnham Street, Omaha, Nebraska. You're like, I don't know anybody in Nebraska. So you open the letter, and the first thing you notice is that the letterhead is from Berkshire Hathaway. And the letter explains that this is no scam. You have actually been named a beneficiary of Warren Buffett's will. And your share is disappointingly small. It's only 1%. But then you say, wait a minute. Warren Buffett's like the richest man in the world, you know, top five, something like that. You Google or you call someone, you you find out how much money he has. He is worth $110 billion. So your 1% share is roughly 1.1 billion with a B. Like as in Bonanza, holy cow. 1.1 billion. You stand to share in this unfathomable inheritance. And what did you do to deserve it? What did you do to earn it? In my fictitious scenario, you did nothing. You opened the mail. And in a very cheap way, that's what being spiritually qualified means. Upon our confession of Jesus as Savior, God grants to us, out of his abundant riches and kindness of his grace, a share in our eternal inheritance. 
We did nothing to earn that, and yet our future has riches beyond comparison and beyond imagination. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 4, that our inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled and doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we respond by giving thanks to the Father and rejoice that we're qualified by his grace. Second, God rescued us from the domain of darkness. God has delivered us from the power of darkness. He rescued us from eternal danger. This is where the title came from, God's dramatic rescue. The power of darkness refers to the authority or the kingdom of darkness. It's not power as in strength, but power as in the authority that the darkness possesses. And the Bible's very clear. Each human being, you and I, when we are born, we are born into this life, but we are also born into the kingdom of darkness. We live in the dark until God rescues us and brings us into the light. And when Jesus came to earth, we could describe his incarnation in a number of ways. And one way that we could describe it is an invasion of hostile territory. He invaded the territory of darkness on a rescue mission. There have been many famous rescue missions in the last hundred years. But here's a story I hadn't heard before uh, this week. In World War II, the U.S. was slowly regaining the islands of the Philippines in late 1944. That's Douglas MacArthur's famous, I Shall Return. But the Philippines are a conglomeration of islands, so each island had to be cleared of the enemy. Intelligence showed that the Japanese planned to execute POWs instead of Uh, instead of moving them further away from the front lines. Well, that was unacceptable to Americans, for rightfully so. It was unacceptable under the terms of war, too. So on January 30th, 1945, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci from Connecticut, an Italian from Connecticut, clearly, by by that last name, led a group of Army Rangers and Filipino guerrillas 30 miles through the jungle, through the night, to make a surprise attack on the, I'm going to butcher this, the Kabanatuan camp. The raid was actually a huge success. The U.S. suffered only two rangers killed in action, while the Japanese lost at least 530 soldiers. The final count was 522 POWs rescued, many of whom survived the Bataan Death March, and that's actually where information about the Death March started to come from, from many of these survivors. This raid is simply known as the Great Raid, You understand why. These brave soldiers were hailed as heroes, and rightly so. They infiltrated deep into enemy territory and rescued a group of captives from the clutches of the enemy. Through Jesus, the Father has rescued us from a far greater danger, the danger of eternal damnation. And if these men were considered heroes and rightfully so, then what is our response to our Savior who has done something far more lasting, something that will affect us not just for a few years, but for all eternity? Our God is worthy of our praise and honor. So we give thanks to him and rejoice that we are delivered from the domain, the power of darkness. Third, God transferred us into Christ's kingdom. This third dramatic action is the last part of verse 13. God conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son 
of his love. And many modern translations use the word transfer instead of the word convey. The old King James uses translate instead. And this word means to move from one place to another or to change one's state. I think this concept is familiar to us, but but Paul is drawing here on history for the city of Colossae. The word could refer in in, uh, secular Greek usage to the resettling of a people group. In In the second century BC, so before Christ, the Greek king Antiochus III transplanted 2,000 Jewish families into the area around the city of Colossae. So in other words, this Jewish group of people were transferred from Israel to Colossae. And that's a wonderful picture of what God does to us at salvation. God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light. We have been resettled in Christ's kingdom, given a new home new values, a new citizenship even. Jesus, verse 13 says, is the son of his love or God's beloved son, the one in whom the father is well pleased. He is the king of this kingdom. He rules a spiritual kingdom right now and we believe that he will return to establish his earthly kingdom. And so when we receive Jesus as Savior, God delivers us from darkness. God resettles us into the kingdom of light so we can give thanks to the Father and rejoice that we are transferred into Christ's kingdom. And all of these actions are irreversible. God translated us, transferred us into the kingdom of Christ, and he's not going to do the same thing in reverse. We're not nomads any longer wandering from kingdom to kingdom. We are firmly planted in the kingdom of Christ. Now on earth, we are pilgrims, the Bible says, because our home is not here. Our home lies in heaven. Our true resting place is still to come. And aren't we glad for that? If this earth was all that there is, it would be very disappointing. God has qualified us. He's delivered us. He's transferred us. His dramatic rescue of sinners should leave us in wonder and awe of his majesty and of his grace. And as we meditate on how God has done this, the means by which he has accomplished these things, our wonder should increase even more because it's through Jesus' death on the cross that this dramatic rescue takes place. So God acted dramatically and decisively through the death of Christ. Verse 14 begins with a little phrase, in whom, and that refers back to the beloved son. The rest of verse 14 describes Jesus' role as the means by which God accomplished these actions. By Jesus' death, God redeemed us and forgave our sins. Let's take those two one at a time. Jesus' death redeemed us. And this concept of redemption stretches from Genesis to Revelation. The Exodus is the greatest example of redemption when Yahweh delivered his people with a mighty arm and freed them from slavery and brought them into a good land. Redemption means to buy something back. Slavery was very common in the Roman world. To redeem a slave meant to set a slave free by means of a ransom payment. And the New Testament refers to Jesus' death on the cross as redemption. Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The redemption of Jesus was through his own blood. The ransom payment to set us free, we who are captives, was the the blood that he shed. Now, if you have a modern translation, you'll notice in verse 14 that the phrase, through his blood, is not included here. And uh, the earliest manuscripts don't record this little phrase. There's a whole scientific uh, wing of, of study that talks about why there's differences in the text. And it most likely it's borrowed from Ephesians 1.7. I just read it. In him we have redemption through his blood. And so perhaps a, a copyist noted that and, and thought about Ephesians 1.7 and used his memory instead of reading the text. And, and some people have pointed to this verse, Colossians 1.14, as proof that modern translations are trying to remove references to the blood of Christ. I've, I've actually read that. That's just not true. And if, if you've heard that, it's just not true. Because Ephesians 1.7, Romans 3.25, Hebrews chapter 9, the entirety of that chapter, shows that our redemption is through the blood of Christ. We have nothing to fear here. By framing the cross as an act of redemption, God reminds us that we are slaves trapped in eternal darkness, in the domain of darkness. Jesus' death redeems us. He, He frees us. He buys us back from slavery. Now we who confess Jesus as Lord are free. We are no longer under the slave of sin. We're no longer under the bondage of our former way of living. We are free people. Because Jesus has died to set us free. We are redeemed. And next week we'll talk about the implications of that for us. If we are redeemed and that is true of us, that's our identity, how should we then live? Second, Jesus' death forgave our sins. The result of Jesus shedding his blood and redeeming us is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the release of a debt. Liberation from captivity. The receiving of a pardon. Our multitude of sins has been wiped away. Our sins that filled our account are removed, expunged from the record. At the Last Supper, Jesus said his blood is shed for our forgiveness. He said this, for this is the my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. Your sin has accrued a debt before God. And there are several ways the Bible pictures our sin before God, and one of them is a legal debt. In fact, in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, Paul is going to return to that metaphor in a very powerful way. Our sin has accrued a debt before God, and the Bible shows us that there is no work There is no religious duty. There is no amount of money. There is nothing that we can do to pay off our debt back to God. There's nothing we can do. There are a lot of people who say, I can't believe that. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to pay back God. I'm going to try to pay him off. I'm going to try to find something to do that will let me get into heaven. The Bible shows us 
that there is nothing you can do. It's hopeless. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. And until we come to terms with the fact that there is nothing I can do, there is no hope. But once you recognize that and say, yes, I can do nothing, now the light shines. Because the rest of Romans 6.23 says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there is hope, and his name is Jesus. This gift of eternal life cost Jesus everything. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He literally died and was buried. And what we celebrate at Easter is his glorious resurrection where he conquered death. He took the very sting out of death so that all who trust in him will never die again. By trusting in Jesus' death for your sins, God will forgive you. And I don't know where you're at spiritually. Many of you I know have been walking with the Lord. Your sins have been forgiven for many years. But if you have never confessed Jesus as your Savior, this text is for you. The offer of forgiveness is available. Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to become qualified for a heavenly inheritance? Do you want to be delivered from darkness? Do you want to be transferred into the kingdom of light? Do you want to be set free of your bondage? And there are, there are thousands of people in the world who would answer that yes. And the Bible says you can if you turn to Christ. Forsake all else, come to him. Confess your sin, cry out to God, look to Jesus as the only Savior. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, that promise is what anchors us. Because Philippians 1.6 says that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it, will keep it until the day of redemption. If you have been saved by the grace of God, you cannot be lost. God is much better at keeping track of his own than we are of our keys. When a person receives Christ, their identity is completely transformed. It's completely changed. We are new creations, the Bible says. So God's dramatic rescue of sinners through Christ means that we are completely new. We're totally changed. In these verses, there are seven descriptions of our new identity in Christ. Seven. In verse 12, we learn that believers are qualified heirs. We are saints. We are people of light. Verse 13 says that we are rescued from danger. We are now citizens of Christ's kingdom. Verse 14 says that we are redeemed. We are forgiven. That's what's true of you now. That's who you are. That's, that's more true than the job that you have and the relationships you have to your family. That is eternally true of you and I. There are so many practical applications from these identity markers that instead of trying to, to do them in five minutes or less, we're going to save that for next week. And we'll come back to this text and flesh out the implications. Now I recognize there's a lot of material here. Sometimes we have to grapple with truth that is so overwhelming that it, that it, it humbles us, 
and it causes us to marvel. We've, we've, lost, our, we've lost our wonder in our culture. A.W. Tozer, actually back in the 1950s, lamented this loss of the wonder, the perception of God. He wrote, the tragic and frightening decline in the spiritual state of the church has come about as the result of our forgetting what kind of God our God is. Unless we get to know what God is like, unless we know God, we will accept all the superficial nonsense that passes for Christianity today. At the very foundation of our loss today is what, is what Tozer calls the vision of the majesty on high. These verses give us a vision of the majesty on high. They show us that, that our day-to-day lives are hectic, our day-to-day lives are challenging, but there are, there are so grand truths. There's such a grand and great God that sometimes we miss because we're scurrying about looking around. Let's lift our eyes. Let's see what God has done. Let's respond with wonder and awe, with joy and celebration, but with sorrow and grief. We sorrow over the costly death of Christ, yet we rejoice that God has saved us. So our hearts, now as we go to the Lord's table, swell with joyful grief. That yes, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed, I've been transferred, I've been qualified. But how great the cost. And the prayer then, from Colossians 1, 9 through 11, is that we would understand this will of God, that we would understand the knowledge of God's will in Christ, and that we would then walk worthy of him. So let's pray together and bow and prepare for the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would fill our church with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that, that the result of understanding how great you are and the plan of redemption through Christ, the result of this that is that we would walk worthy of you. Our hearts, as we've just sung, always hunger for you, and, and we know that we're so shallow and so needy, and, and when we see a vision of you like this, we're, we're humbled in the face of majesty. And yet God draws closer to you, our Father. Minister grace to us. Strengthen us with all might. Increase our knowledge of you. Bear fruit in our hearts and lives, we pray. And now as we meditate on the table, we pray that Christ would fill our hearts with joy and respect and sorrow and reverence as we walk with him this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoy this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.